Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the business news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we'll hear from one St. Louis entrepreneur about their experience of the climate for LGBTQ business owners in the state. Then we'll learn about a company in Springfield that is trying to tap into the growing esports industry. Siggy Reese, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Teddy Mayorga. Teddy, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty well, Siggy. Trying to stay cool with all this hot, humid weather we've had, but I'm enjoying the summer so far. How about you? I'm doing well also. The humid weather has kind of been a little bit annoying, but, uh, you know, I'm just getting used to it. Um, but I'm ready to dive back into things and give everything a second go-around now that I'm a bit more familiar with the podcast. Me too. I'm ready to get back in the saddle without having the first-time nerves. You want to get started with the headlines? Sure. Why don't you start us off? The Supreme Court has rejected Bayer's attempts to dismiss claims that the weed killer Roundup causes cancer. The ruling leaves them vulnerable to potentially having to pay billions in settlement money. Bayer inherited Roundup in its 2018 acquisition of Creevecore-based Monsanto. Bayer's argument, in part, centers around receiving clearance from the Environmental Protection Agency for its product, although the EPA announced last week it would re-examine whether the active ingredient glyphosate poses some sort of threat to humans and the environment. Bayer had hoped that the majority conservative Supreme Court would hear the appeal even as President Joe Biden urged the court to dismiss the case. According to Missouri Department of Economic Development data obtained by the Kansas City Business Journal, Missouri has missed out on more than $4.3 billion in business attraction projects over the past five years. The state lost out on 69 projects that would have added more than 18,000 jobs across the state. 37 of the proposals were marked dead because they were discontinued at some point, while the remaining 32 proposals were categorized as lost due to companies selecting another state over Missouri. The largest development that Missouri failed to secure was a $1.7 billion vehicle assembly plant for Toyota and Mazda. In St. Louis, Ameren is aiming to get regulator approval to charge customers for any court-ordered modifications to its grid. But consumer advocates worry that this could result in Ameren passing on the consequences of its legal missteps to consumers. The utility giant came under fire in 2011 after a suit alleged Ameren made illegal modifications to its Rush Island plant, boosting pollution in the St. Louis area. Ameren proposed delaying the closure of the plant by three years following a recent report by grid operators. Estimates place the cost of keeping the facility running at up to $20 million a month, while Ameren also plans to construct $244 million in power lines and other upgrades to make up for the energy production that will be lost when the plant closes. Boeing operations in the St. Louis area received some welcome news Wednesday when the House Armed Services Committee recommended the production of eight more Super Hornet fighter jets. The fighter jet had previously been on the chopping block, with the Navy looking to upgrade its arsenal and move to newer models. The policy bill is not final and doesn't mandate production, but it has typically served as an accurate framework for how defense spending might look. For our first story, reporter Sarah Rubenstein reached out to Missouri business owners to get more insight into a recent report from an organization called OutLeadership. So what did the report cover and what did it have to say about Missouri? So the report was OutLeadership's fourth annual state LGBTQ plus business climate index. It ranks all 50 states in terms of their support for LGBTQ plus individuals along a variety of parameters like political support, access to health resources and business and work environment. 
The rankings are then used to explain the economic effects of some policies and to develop a business argument for how more inclusive policies could generate an economic benefit for each state. Missouri ended up ranking 35th and received a lower score than it did last year. And which categories did Missouri fall short in? Well, Missouri didn't score especially high in any category, but the state particularly struggled in the legal and non-discrimination protection section. For specific issues, Missouri received low scores for how easy it is for transgender people to change their birth certificate, conversion therapy connections, and a lack of substantive health support. Gotcha. And so who'd Sarah sit down with? So Sarah interviewed LGBTQ plus business owners from across Missouri to get a sense of their experiences. Here is some of her conversation with Sophie Mendelson, one of the founders of Sugar Witch in St. Louis, a queer-owned business that makes frozen treats. So recently, um, Out Leadership, every year they do an annual ranking of all of the 50 states of how well they do with LGBT inclusion and protections and safety. And so through my research, Missouri got 35th out of the 50 states. And I wanted to talk to you about your experience as an openly queer business owner in Missouri. And how would you say that statistic feels to you? Does that feel accurate based on how um, your experience has been? And just what do you think of that? Well, that's, it's interesting to, to hear um, where we rank. <laughs> um, I would say that in my personal experience, I haven't ever been made to feel unsafe um, as a result of my identity, um, my sexual orientation, um, or the way that our business is very vocal about our, our queer politics, um, and queer people involved in, in what we do. Um, I'm also white, so I'm sure that plays a part as well. Um, and, and I don't know, in some ways I felt protected, um, by just my my life circumstances and my social sphere, which is very queer and very liberal and has been since I was a, a baby. It has been interesting to see um, I, one of the coffee shops that we collaborate with um, has had their pride flag violated um, or I guess vandalized um, three times in the last couple of weeks. Um, and that's over in Maplewood, which I think of as very liberal and, and comfortable. Um, it is interesting, I think, that in this particular case, the vandalism has always taken place at night. Um, and so it is somebody, at least in some way, who is hiding um, what they're doing. And so I think that's an interesting dynamic as well. But it's um, it's disheartening and concerning. So it sounds like um, you guys are getting a good amount of like positive feedback. But what was it like originally starting the business? Did you feel like you faced certain struggles that you feel like if you were like a cisgender heterosexual white man would not face or how did it feel just going into starting this business? I would say that in many ways, my experience has been more gendered than it has been impacted by being queer, um, at least in the obvious ways. Um, you know, it's still in, in many restaurant and food industry spheres, it is still in many ways sort of a good old boys club. and that it's more often it's it's little things it's the contractor who doesn't who, who you know well i suppose this is a queerness thing also but like who who asks for my husband or you, who wants to speak to the what they presume to be the real authority the person who can actually make decisions and in some ways being able to say that i don't have a husband and it's actually only 
women or other gendered people that you can talk to um, kind of throws people off guard and then they will actually talk to you because you become all of a sudden the authority in a way that they weren't anticipating um, because of sort of the gendered lens through which they were viewing things. And I also find it interesting that you used to be based in Columbia and now you're in St. Louis. I was wondering if being in those different areas changed anything at all. Yeah, and I would say that Ashland is pretty different from Columbia um, as well in terms of at least my understanding of the the sort of general politics of the of the two places. Um, being in Columbia, I mean, I think because it's a university town, um, there tends to be many different people of many different backgrounds and orientations, um, and so there is some level of uh, comfort with people being different from each other. I would say, I, I guess, difference between Columbia and St. Louis is that St. Louis is just so much bigger of a place. Um, and so there is, you know, there's a really strong, thriving activist network um, working on many different issues um, that has a lot of history um, and strategy and momentum. And so it's really exciting to plug into that and to feel that we can um, participate even in small ways or through our support um, behind things. Whereas in Colombia, and part of it is that I just lived there for such a brief period of time that I, I felt less of that um, and more more of that momentum goes into the university rather than the surrounding areas, which is not to say, though, that people aren't doing amazing things. What would you say pride means to you as both a business owner and just personally, especially owning a business that is accepting of all identities? I mean, it's wonderful to be to be recognized and to get attention um, for our business. But I think that pride really for a business like ours that is primarily white um, and many cis people, um, I it's a, and a really important time to be thinking about distribution of resources and um, how businesses who don't look just like ours can thrive in the future. And I think about that on a on a personal level as well, thinking about what some of the history of pride and what were people fighting for and how much of that is still there to fight for. <laughs> um, and there's there's so much. And so I think. Um, having pride as an opportunity to sort of like a reminder to get back in touch with some of that activism um, that's really at, at the heart of pride. Um, I think that's one way that I approach it. It's also fun to put rainbows on things and celebrate. And so I think those are, those are not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think that finding joy in the in the hard work of it and the rage and the activism is that's critical as well as is having that that thing that you're fighting for not just the fighting of course and then I had to ask this question because it's always something that's been on my mind when I talk about pride in business is uh big corporations involvement in pride um of course we see that a lot of big businesses have been jumping on the pride bandwagon but then they donate to anti-LGBT organizations. So how does that feel to you as a small business owner that is actually queer and is not trying to profit off of it? Yeah, I mean, I think of, I think that queerness is a political identity. I think that it has as much to do with your politics as with who you are attracted to. Um, and I think that 
there is there is no queerness in behavior like that like the that type of behavior donating to causes that actively harm vulnerable populations is actively anti-queer both in its impact and its orientation and so it feels I mean it feels very disingenuous um and you know and I think that to some extent it's like let people put let people have rainbows um but I do think that it's really important to follow the money and that's always where the power is going um and so being mindful of that um and I mean it's really, it's not so enjoyable to just partake of some of these more more shallow manifestations of pride. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, no problem. For our second segment this week, we're turning to an industry that has grown into an increasingly lucrative and popular sector for both consumers and companies. And what industry would that be? The gaming industry. In 2021, the gaming industry was estimated to have a value just shy of $200 billion, and that value is expected to grow to nearly $340 billion by 2027, according to data from the gaming insights company Mortar Intelligence. Wow, that's a lot of money. And what has been the catalyst for a lot of this growth? Well, with COVID-19 lockdowns, some people turned to gaming as a way to keep themselves occupied. There's also been a significant increase in internet accessibility, with about 8% more users in 2021 compared to 2020, giving more people the ability to play games. A segment of the market that is also seeing growth not just in popularity but in mainstream acceptance is competitive esports. For more on the topic, reporter Athena Fossil-Brazil looked into a Springfield facility that caters towards competitive gamers. For people passionate about video games, the expansion of the esports industry could mean gaming alone in the basement might be a thing of the past. Contender Esports, a company bringing esports arcade facilities to cities across the world, opened in Springfield, Missouri in 2018. The facilities offer all the equipment necessary to compete at a high level, and gamers from the area gather to play together. Gamer Joseph Merrick has been coming to Contender since it opened. If you don't have those PCs at home, you don't have those specs at home, you can come here and uh, get some practice in or even just kind of play at your own pace, hang out with your friends in a more uh, public environment as opposed to before where you just sit in your bedrooms in your basement and talk over online. The monitors, consoles, keyboards, and internet speed allow players to gather and compete against one another, forming friendships that exist outside of the internet. Gamer Roman Thomas said the community Contender offers is one of his favorite parts. The community is very great. It is so fun to be able to interact with and just have have a similar hobby, especially with like, obviously not all gamers are, but uh, most of them are generally introverted, right? So when you have an introvert with an introvert and they have the same hobbies, it, it meshes really well. Contender Esports is also making competitive gaming more accessible to people who may not have access to the expensive equipment. Gamer Zach Lemley said the facility has enabled him to compete in his favorite video game at a level that was never possible before. I can't do competitive without Contender, really. I can't afford a $3,000 or $4,000 computer to do what this game demands, and it's also being updated, so as it updates, I can't keep up with what the demands are going to be. 
so I can't afford it. Without Contender, I wouldn't be able to do that. Like, they, they have been basically making it possible, and it's very affordable. Contender is at the forefront of the expanding esports industry, and it is not only making gaming more accessible to a wider range of people, but it's creating space for people to form friendships and be part of a community. For the Missouri Business Alert, I'm Athena Foster Brazil in Columbia, Missouri. Teddy, it's time to go over our words of the week. Why don't you go first? All right. This week, I've chosen tutoring. Interesting. I wasn't expecting to hear something like that during the summer while school's on break. Why is it in the news now? Well, Clayton-based online education company Nerdy has adjusted its model for tutoring services due to changing focuses in education. So what are the changes we're seeing in education? Many colleges are shifting focus from standardized testing to grade point average. A number of universities are transitioning to a test-optional model, meaning students are not required to submit standardized test scores. Okay, and how is this affecting Nerdy and other tutoring companies? A decreased emphasis on testing could mean test prep services are less necessary, while more general tutoring could become more in demand. Nerdy says that they are swapping to a subscription-based model rather than offering blocks of tutoring time. In 2021, Nerdy also made the decision to cut their test prep service, Veritas Prep, while developing and launching Varsity Tutors for Schools, a service that it sells to school districts. So what are the financial implications of these decisions? Well, Nerdy expects to see lower revenue initially, but they believe it will provide long-term stability. The monthly fee is also seen as a more manageable figure than the higher upfront prices they used to charge for the blocks of time. There's also a belief in the company that their school-based ventures could grow to the same size as their consumer-side products. Well, I never really cared for standardized testing, so I don't mind hearing that they're becoming less important. It will be interesting, though, to see how other parts of the education industry adapt to the changing landscape. What's your word of the week, Siggy? So for my word of the week, I have chosen pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. I've never heard of PBMs before. What are they? Well, they're the middlemen involved in facilitating the sale of drugs from pharmaceutical companies to patients. Right now, the top three PBMs, CVS Caremark, OptumRx, and Express Scripts, control more than 70% of the market. There's been a lot of news recently about how high drug prices are. Are these PBMs responsible for that? Well, that's what an investigation by the Federal Trade Commission will attempt to find out. The FTC is specifically looking into a practice where drug companies offer higher rebates and fees to these benefit managers in exchange for PBMs giving their drugs preferential treatment. The preferential treatment comes in the form of the drugs being placed higher on lists identifying which drugs are covered by insurance and which will have the lowest copayments. Even as the investigation is happening, though, support for benefit managers could be on the way, with a provision in the bipartisan gun safety bill providing them more protection against anti-kickback laws. What are some of the dollar amounts and figures that we're seeing in relation to these drug price increases? Well, there has been some evidence to show that higher rebates mean higher prices for customers, even with PBMs claiming that the rebates are being passed on to consumers. A 2020 study from the University of Southern California found that a $1 rebate increase correlates to about a $1.17 increase to the list price. Another study earlier this year found that 76 of the 100 top-selling drugs had seen a price hike in 2022. Alongside the increasing prices, yet another study found that during a three-month period, 60% of patients needing a multiple sclerosis drug were forced to buy a name-brand drug selling for more than $8,000 a month, while generic versions of the drug were around $900 a month. It's now time for us to wrap things up with our closing thought. 
For that, we'll turn it back over to Sophie Mendelson to hear what she thinks about the impact education can have on making Missouri a more inclusive state for LGBTQ plus individuals. I think that anything that happens in a state starts with the schools and how how we're educating kids and what futures we're laying out as as possible and as exciting and as worth striving for. Um, and I think that taking that sort of more holistic approach, I know it's not like a direct thing related to business and how businesses operate, but really at a societal and cultural level, schools are where some of these cultural shifts start or where some of these backlashes really play out and impact the people who have some of the least power um, in our society is, is in schools with kids. Um, so that would be, I mean, that, that's the number one thing that comes to mind. I think that anything that I experience as a business owner, any kind of negativity around what we're doing, that's because people are growing up and learning worldviews that don't include people like me. I think of trans kids getting to play sports and all kids getting to read books that that show the whole world, not just one little narrow slice of it. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing music for this episode. For my co-host Teddy Mallorca, editors Ian Laird, James Marshall, Skylar Rossi, and Michael Stacy, I'm Siggy Reese, and this has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.